Trail and ultra runners, what is going on? What's happening? Welcome to a very special episode of the Coopcast, an episode that I have wanted to get off the ground for many, many, many months now, and that is the launch of Training Essentials for Ultra Running, the second edition. I I am absolutely thrilled that this book and this product have finally come to light. It has been a long time coming. I know a lot of the listeners have been consistently reaching out to me asking, when is this going to be available? And I'm not going to lie. The last 10% of getting this, getting this book actually out into the public's arms and ears and eyes has been painstakingly difficult. You guys know that I don't accept any sponsors or advertisements on this podcast, but that is not going to prevent me from plugging my own stuff. Um, I feel that I've earned it. I'm really proud of the product that's out there. And so I wanted to get on the podcast today, the co-authors of this book, Jim Rutberg, who's a very longtime friend and colleague of mine. And if truth be told, he is the one that is responsible for this book and this whole mess in the first place. And a new co-author of the book, one of my coaching colleagues, Corinne Malcolm, I wanted to get them on the podcast to really describe how the book really unfolded from a content perspective and what you all, the listeners, can expect if you do happen to go and buy it. The book is available now. It's available via paperback on Amazon. It's available in an audiobook format, an enhanced audiobook format that we talk about during the course of this podcast uh, via Audible. And it is also available on my website, jasoncoop.com backslash book or forward slash book in a special edition hardcover that is only going to be available on my website. You're not going to be able to find it on Amazon or anywhere else like that. And I will personalize those copies for you if you want that to be part of your information arsenal coming up for this next season. Um, I had a revelation just a couple of days ago when I was proofing the book that I really, I, I finally have come around to the understanding that this could be a title that sticks around for 20 or 30 years. It really could be something that we see future iterations of. And I don't say that very lightly. Um, I've always said that I'm a very reluctant author. I am not a writer by trade. And I think something that comes out through the course of this podcast is that I it took a lot of cajoling for me to actually take the leap of faith and write a book. And even after the first edition of the book, I realized that I wanted to make a vast number of improvements and adjustments to the content. And I was able to do that on this particular uh, uh, this particular edition of the book. And I'm quite happy with it. And I once again, I really didn't realize how impactful it could be for all of the trail and ultra runners out there and all the trail and ultra runners that come to enter the space in the next few years until I started uh, going through the proofs. So I hope the listeners, you guys go and check the book out. In an effort of full disclosure, we recorded this podcast and I'm kind of laughing because of how old it is. We recorded this podcast just after all the production for the book and the audio book were done. So we made references to things that happened in the middle of the summer and it's just taken me this long to finally get the thing uh, out in the public. So that's the reason for a little bit of the delay there, but the book's out people. 
go and check it out. I'm very appreciative of all the support that I've received from everybody throughout the course of the years and throughout the course of producing this actual book. Here it is, the preview of Training Essentials for Ultra Running, second edition with the co-authors of the book, Jim Rutberg and Corinne Malcolm. No one, no one has uh, written a book like this to make money. Okay, let's start out with that, Ruddy. <laughs> so, okay, go back to the genesis of all of all of this. Way, way before I actually even did Corinne, right? So, um, I've I've mentioned multiple times, and it's actually in the audiobook, Now that I'm thinking about it, um, in the introduction that I was kind of a really reluctant author. Part part of that reluctancy is the fact that I'm not a writer. Some of that reluctancy is I didn't feel that I was an expert. Some of that reluctancy has to do with just my own internal insecurities and things like that. And that's neither here nor there, but the more the more salient point to what we just mentioned is is I knew the space wasn't that big. And I remember very distinctly going to VeloPress, who was the publisher for the first book, who we we'd worked with on a number of publications before, who was on board with the project. You got them on board before you got me on board, I think, Ruddy. Um, I had to get you at least interested. I wasn't going to go to them with something that I, that I knew <laughs> that I couldn't deliver. Um, but I, it was a little bit of playing the two off of you. It's kind of like, hey, I've got Jason interested and here's what we want to do. And then I had to come to you and you're like, hey, VeloPress is kind of interested in this and get you interested in it as well. So it was, I was kind of playing both sides. Well, I guess my point with that is, is I remember going to VeloPress and like first thinking, you're really going to support this? Because they got to make money. Like, you know, they're, you know, they need to be a profitable company. They're not doing that at charity. I remember going to them and going, here's the size of the audience. I had the stats, right? The audience at the time was like 100,000, 140,000 people or something like that. You know what fraction of people you could probably sell to. Run the math. Does it work out? And they were like, yeah, we can, we can make this work. And I was flabbergasted at how easy they came to that answer. I'm like, you're telling me if I just, if you sell this many copies, it's profitable for you to to put all of this horsepower behind producing a book. They have to find editors and illustrators and copy editors and pay me and blah, 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 blah. And then they pulled like the ace out of the you know, the ace out of the deck of cards, they said, well, you know, industry-wide, 80% of authors don't make anything more than their advance. Meaning they pay you the advance and 80% of the authors out there, that's all they get. They don't see one dime of the royalty, but that's my dog's squeaky toy, by the way, for those of you that are wondering, they're listening. That will continue to happen by, throughout this podcast because this is going to be a loosey-goosey one. But, but, my point with that is, is 80% of the authors don't make, don't make more than a royalties back, but across all of the books that we had produced at the time and including training essentials for ultra running number one, which Ruddy, you had a hand in every single one, they all have made more than their way more than just their advance back. And I haven't. <laughs> but but that was by by design i uh people used to ask me all the time like aren't you making royalties off the books you wrote with uh chris and, and jason and at the time i was a full-time employee yeah, yeah so i always looked at it and said look i would much rather make my salary than rely on 
royalties that may or may not ever appear. <laughs> royalties so, from, from publishing, ultra-running, trading books. Yeah, it's like, like the smallest niche of all. <laughs> like, I'll take my paycheck every two weeks. Thank you. Um, and I still agree that that was the right thing to do. Yeah, it's great that the books have done well enough that they've uh, that we've seen some royalties from them. But um, that, as I've said to Jason and other people in this space who wanted to write books within uh, endurance sports and things like that, Nobody in this space is doing it for the money. Um, you have to be, there needs to be a different reason to write the book. And I think everyone's agreed with me in, in terms of understanding that the, the, my thing with books has always been, it is a great opportunity to present a, sub, a subject matter in its entirety. So you can cover it from A to Z in one big idea and get it into somebody's hands so that they can, can digest it from A to Z, as opposed to, you know, we've all written articles and done, you know, smaller bits and pieces. The the book is what gives you the ability to, um, to really give people everything at once. Well, and one of the things that I, that, that I kind of continue to like fall back on in this whole proposition, because you're right, nobody's going to become a zillionaire writing a book. Corinne, I know this is like, this was like your first foray into it. I think I was very obvious from the get go that we're not gonna, you know, retire off into the sunset after, after this is published. We'll do okay. We'll do okay. Don't, don't have all the confidence in the world that that's going to be the case, but we're, this is not going to be, you know, retirement money. Nobody's going to be buying a yacht or anything like that. And you were cool with that, Corinne. You were cool with coming on board with the project, knowing that you're not going to be a millionaire afterwards. I agreed to it despite despite <laughs> the the uh, the hazardous work conditions that is book writing. So let's let's add to the complexity then, because I want to tell the whole story of how it came to be in its current format. So when I when I produced the first edition of the book with VeloPress, once again they're a company they got to make money, and I wanted to do all this cool shit. Like, of course, like I'm gonna dive into it, and like any ultra runner's mindset, I'm gonna dive into it full force, like with reckless abandon and train 200 miles a week in the same whatever book equivalent there is there. Um, and they said, no, 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 hold on. You can't have all of these technical editors and do an audio book and it can only be 350 pages because nobody's going to buy a 500 page, you know, training manual right out of the get go. They, they put some parameters on my enthusiasm, you know, certainly. And I'm very grateful that they did because the first edition would have never have come out with without those parameters. It gave me some framework to work with. But when we started working with them this next time around, we approached them again, and I was still shocked. We want to do a second edition, and Vela Press, which is now Pocket Outdoor Media, said yes. The first edition did very well. It's time for a refresh. We got them on board with it. It still befuddles me as to you know how something like this can exist in the space. About halfway through writing the second edition, writing and revising the second edition of the book, COVID hit. And Ruddy remembers this very, very, very distinctly. Um, they sent an email out to all of their authors and said, we are not going to support any productions that are not completed, that are not currently completed. So if you'd already written it, that didn't apply to those authors. But we're not going to support any new productions that have not been completed until at the earliest, the end of 2021. And this was March 2020 when they sent this out and I looked at this and I was like, oh, 
I cannot, I just can't wait this long to put this out with no guarantee that it would actually get put out because you never know what's going to happen. They could go under, like so many things could happen between now and then. And so I made the decision right then and there that I was going to acquire the rights to the book. And so I contacted them. I said, hey, listen, I want to acquire, acquire the rights to the book. They were very gracious in negotiating that deal. I worked with Ruddy to, to, to kind of get that. But then it became its own monster because I had no restrictions. I could do whatever I wanted to. I could do whatever I wanted to. Part of that was bringing you on board in a bigger capacity, Corinne, which they were on board from, from, from the get-go, but I, could, I had a little bit more leeway with it. Part of it was actually recording an audiobook. I'm going to play, I'm going to play a little sample of that in the middle of this podcast at a poignant part. It's not your part, Corinne. It's another part. You're extremely scared. Um, and then part of it was making the book just bigger, having more content to it. And I feel that now we've all kind of three seen it now. It's almost too much. Ruddy's laughing his ass off. Is it we too much? A monster. Is it too much, Ruddy? I you, don't know that it's too much, I, but I, I can't change it. So. Yeah, <laughs> but we can't, we can't go back. Can't we've go created back. a monster. But again, if you go back to the very beginning and the purpose or the or the rationale for doing it in the first place was we wanted to produce or we saw the opportunity to produce a benchmark book within ultra the ultra running space and. The three of us, we've all been around coaching long enough to know that there are benchmark books in other endurance sports and in other strength sports and everything else. Um, we had the unique opportunity because of the of ultra running's development that there really wasn't a benchmark book out there. And it's pretty rare that you have the opportunity anymore, pretty rare that you have the opportunity to create something like that that wasn't there. So... Um, you know, the first one was a complete work, I believe, and um, this one is an expanded one, not because we just wanted to hear ourselves speak, so to, you know, so to speak, but we were getting questions about the things that were added to the book. It wasn't that they were, you know, hey, we just wanted... We just wanted to hear ourselves talk more. Right. We wanted, we wanted to come up with some more esoteric, you know, things that nobody cared about. We're the, the material that is new for the book are all things that came up in the speaking engagements that you did in podcast responses in podcasts that you produced all of those kind of, uh, that feedback that we got after the book, which is again, part of why you write a book. It's, it's something that it's a platform from which you can go out and speak to audiences and you have an idea that you can present and you have something you can interact with um, and that they can come to a, a speaking engagement and have a, a conversation with you at that point. You know, you, you mentioned something that I'm going to go back to is this benchmark book thing. I've told you this before. I had a hard time like wrapping my head around that. Cause that's kind of a tall order. Um, you, we mentioned in the interview that is in the audio book that, we, that I had these books that I leaned on, like The Lore of Running, like Jeff Galloway's training program, like Better Training for Distance Runners, like these things that I had kind of like used as as coaching manuals for myself. And when you when you initially said those words during the first edition of the book, that was like super intimidating to say that f like fuck, I'm gonna like have to. I was putting myself to to have to live up to that level of standard, right? To that standard of all of those other benchmark books 
that I had used. And time will tell whether or not this book and the next edition of this book and the third edition and the fourth edition and however many editions it goes to, um, uh, time will tell whether that is ultimately going to be the case, whether it is a reference book for, for, for forever. But just the concept of it, I had a really hard time wrapping my head around because of the enormity of that statement. Yeah, but that that's the nature of, I mean, ironically, that's the nature of coaching. I mean, we're, our job as coaches is to help athletes to, to figure out or discover that they can do more than they think they can or that they're capable of doing something that they are intimidated by or uh, that they have potential that they haven't recognized yet. Um, so you didn't have to realize that you could do it. I had to realize you could do it. Um, and I was pretty confident that I knew that you had the subject matter, to, the domain expertise to do it. We had no idea going into it, whether you, the writing component was there. Um, <laughs> and um, That's thank, still up for debate. Well, thankfully, I mean, you did a lot more of the, uh, tremendously more of the r- actual writing in the first edition than in the previous books that I'd worked on. So, and that was great, you know, because it, it was less that I had to do, honestly. Um, and it was... It, I think it came out better because it is most, it is really your voice with some help as opposed to my voice with, you know, the information coming into it. Yeah. So Corinne hasn't been privy to this process a lot. Um, but so I just finished, I just, as we're recording this, I just finished the bulk of the read for the audiobook, which is kind of why we're sitting down now because there's actually a light at the end of the tunnel. Um, there's pieces that, I I wrote from scratch that I read. There are pieces that Ruddy initially wrote that we rewrote together that I read. There are pieces that, that Corinne had written and then we rewrote and I read there. uh, There's a piece that Sarah Scazzaro wrote and then Ruddy and I revised and I read by far the easiest one for me to read were the ones that I wrote myself. The other ones were complete clusterfucks. Like, I mean, just every, like every other word was taught. Like, I just like, I don't, I don't, this isn't like, it's not that it's like, like fake or anything like that, but it's definitely, it definitely was really challenging because even though I had a big hand in the rest of the content, I didn't originally, didn't originally write it. It was a hard thing to do way harder than I thought it was. Well, when we started and you asked kind of like, you know, how to, how to get started or how to do the first one, I, I was, <laughs> I didn't know it's such a rookie thing. How do I start this book? Well, maybe, I think I wrote the intro. Yeah. Right? yeah. And because we had to write the, the That's um, right. proposal and everything. And the, I think my, my kind of simple advice was write like you speak. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you're, you, yeah. you, how would you tell somebody this information verbally and just do that in writing and it usually is going to work out pretty well. Um, if anything, the, the chapters that I had more of a hand in were probably, and I felt bad while I was listening to you read it too, because (laughs) I recognized like, Oh wow, I made this more complicated than, than it needed to be or than it, that it's hard to read because of the way I wrote it. Um, because I don't do those speaking engagements and I don't do as much of the verbal delivery of those of, of books and of content. So I'm used to just seeing things on paper and you, when you're reading something in your head, you can use words that you can't really pronounce. Yeah. I'm so thankful 
that the outtakes are obliterated <laughs> because the way that they're recorded is is when you flub it you literally record over the flub, like actually record over the flub. So there's no B-roll. Maybe to VL, to VL's the audio engineer who's who's great at what he does, by the way. Um, maybe he has a hidden stash of them that he'll release into the wild at some point, but I don't think they'll they'll get out. Um, let's let's kind of pivot a little bit to what's new, right? Because I'm I'm really psyched about some of the new things that you mentioned, Ruddy. The genesis is the genesis of the new things was really the feedback we were getting from the community and the lessons learned, kind of from the first book. Not that there's anything wrong with it, but we realized that. It was very incomplete, right? Um, being a first edition, we wanted to blend this. The audience isn't really used to this type of content. It was the first time a technical book like this had been written. Uh, we tra- we were trying to blend that with having you know high high quality content, scientific content, and a lot of times that's a hard balance to strike. Corinne, as you know from your articles with I Run Far, one of the one of the key things that I was very thankful that I was insistent on from the get-go is I wanted a woman co-author and I wanted her to be able to write sections of the book in her own voice. Meaning it's not me actually writing it. It's whoever, whoever we choose to do it. And this is a choice at the time, right? I came up with the concept first, wanted a woman. I wanted to write some women's specific sections but I wanted it to not be in my voice. I wanted it to be in this other person's voice so other so the women who were reading it about women's specific stuff could really identify it. And there was no better choice for that that I have in my database or any other person's database, to be honest with you, than, than the new newest co-author to the collaboration here, which is Corinne Malcolm. So Corinne, you wrote the entirety of this woman's specific section as well as you wrote the entirety of the environmental section, which I guess I get to t- kind of take credit for, but that was all you. I did remaster it a little bit. You saw it. But what I want to know what your experience was like because I approached you with a kind of a really specific, hey, we want these two sections, and I was really insistent about it needs to, this section needs to be in your voice in this other section. We're going to try to remaster so that it fits kind of the flow of the book. Do you, reflecting on it, what did you think about that whole that whole process. Yeah, it was a funky process because we li- there's a couple like I've written like some mini sections too that are kind of like smattered throughout the book. Yeah. And so, and I knew the women's section would be in my voice. And so it's easy to write in my voice. And I had to learn how to be a ghostwriter on the fly, trying to keep Jason Coop's voice in my head. So I kind of envision it like, you know, how people have like an angel and a devil on their shoulders. <laughs> telling them to do things or not do things that I had my own little Jason coop on my shoulder. And I'd be like, what, how would Jason say this? Which one, what shoulders um, are, what side, so if, the angel side or the devil side? I don't know if it's the angel side or the devil side. It depends Probably it depends before on the or after day. coffee. <laughs> yeah. Before or after coffee, how late I was on a deadline, you know, whatever that might've been like, but um, it was really interesting because, you know, I really enjoy science writing and I enjoy taking these, complex topics and trying to make them understandable for everyone um, and do that every month in my column for I Run Far. And so I got to write on topics that I was really familiar with as well. Um, My educational background is in environmental physiology. So, you know, basically got to regurgitate stuff that I've said over and over again. Um, But other sections I had to learn more about. 
um, periodically. And I thought that was, you know, it's always a fun learning process to pull the latest literature, make sure you're not making anything up um, to keep it. I think I told you it had to be interesting and as factually accurate as possible while, mm. while still being like um, not simple, but concise. Um, and it's sometimes it's, it's hard to be accurate and like a prop at the appropriate level of explanation. Like you have to choose what you leave out and what you leave in. It's like teaching middle school math where you're like, we'll teach you the other way to do this in a couple of years. So trying to keep it factual while being an engaging, interesting, digestible topic is often a big struggle with some of these scientific categories. Well, the way, the way that that really got illuminated was through the technical edits, which is another aspect that I, I am just, I cannot tell the audience and, and you guys and these two individuals who provided the technical edits how appreciative I am with their counsel. And the, the two people that I'm talking about are Stephanie Howe and Nick Tiller, both both of whom make kind of appearance, appearances in the audiobook. But they went through the entire manuscript, went through every single citation, made sure that those citations were accurately uh, portraying the research that they were referencing and really took things through a fine-tooth comb and they elevated the level of content within the book, the level of accuracy that the information is presented on. And to your point, Corinne, part of the pain point is presenting the these technical topics with that level of accuracy that people can also understand. I I just I, I'm just through the moon with how that actually how that actually played out at the end of the day because from where Nick took the first crack of the book, I gave him what I thought was a pretty good and complete copy. And Nick is really, really smart. He's been on this podcast twice. He wrote very appropriately the Skeptic's Guide to Sports Science. That hit that's his that's his thing, right? Is being a skeptic in sports science. He tore the thing apart. And it was really humbling to read. Like very, very, very humbling to read. But it's going to serve the audience just in this really incredibly immensely powerful way because you can be sh you can be sure that the way that the information is is presented is done so with like the highest level of scientific integrity and then stephanie got like the second you know like kick at the wounded dog so after i had you know gone through all of nick's edits i kind of went through the whole thing i passed it off to steph who just had her first child by the way like so kudos to steph for like being the freaking iron woman warrior cranking this thing out with a freaking infant you know at her at her side the entire time it just got raised up another notch so i'm just really i, I that's one of the areas of the that's one of the like the new areas of not only the book, but like the process as a whole that I'm just really, really grateful. I bit the bullet on, I, you know, spent a little bit of extra money in the production of the book. I had to eat some humble pie across the process, but it's going to, it's, I'm just really happy with the way the book and the product turned out after all their, after all their counsel. <laughs> I think that the edits, the, the edit process after getting it back from them, was the more difficult um, 
process in, because now you we were looking at comments and at recommendations or suggestions and, and having to go, okay, yeah, I see that point, but can we really, what do we do with it? Yeah, do we, yeah, yeah. do we, if we make that change, it's going to mean half a chapter more of explanation or have we gotten it close enough, you know, from a, which thing is again, going back to Curran's point of how much can you explain? Cause there's always going to be a, yeah, but yeah, yeah, yeah. to all of these things like, well, you're, here's how you should do heat acclimation. Well, yeah, but then there's this and this and this and this. So there's always going to have to be that decision point of where's the, where's the stopping point of this is how we're going to say it and, and how we're going to leave it. I think the, the, what I call the logical extensions of the research that we have to do a lot in coaching. I mean, we have to look at sports science research and then make it applicable to athletes, tell them, Hey, go out and run two hours or go strength train or kind of whatever. We're taking that research that's done in a very clinical setting and applying it to people in the real world. But the bigger extensions of that research, one of the things that I think is kind of clear throughout the book is when we're actually taking those, mm. the research says this, Here's what you can extrapolate from that. Here's how you can apply it to your to to your day-to-day training. The mental skills chapter in particular, which is the next thing that I kind of wanted to transition to, is a really good example of that where all of the research is it's kind of fractured and it really doesn't have a lot of com- like really compelling evidence in terms of if you do this, you will improve by 10%, which the physiological research does, right? You go through this interval training protocol before, after your VO2 max is up by 5%, right? There's a lot of that type of research in, in physiology and psychology. There's not. And you have to take these bigger extensions of the research. And I think one of the ways that that kind of like came through was presenting the landscape of all of the research and what different practitioners do and then laying it out to an athlete in a periodized manner. Like I, like the, 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 not to give too much of the, you know, farm away or anything like that might result in like two extra, two, two fewer book sales, but part, part, part of the narrative of that mental skills chapter is you should be periodizing your mental skills in the same context as your, as your training. And I just, once again, it was just one of those things that I'm just really happy at all kind of like, came, it kind of came together like that. But the, the gist of it is, is we had to create a lot of logical extensions of the research in that area in particular, which is fine. That's the way it has to happen. Okay. I want to get to the next area that's new, which I'm super stoked about. And is the audio book. So Ruddy, what's the length total right now when we left this recording studio a couple days ago? Was it was it yesterday? Uh, a couple days ago. Okay. Um, <laughs> well, let's put it this way: with the raw edit, he the two VL had to figure out how to to go beyond twenty four hours. <laughs> I forgot about that. <laughs> and it was the first time in his career that the. The session reached the limit of the software and all of a sudden it just stopped and he's looking at it like, I don't exactly know what happened. And we wait, we wait a couple minutes and everything else. He goes, Oh, I think that it has a maximum of 24 hours. We just have to start a new session, but it is the first time in his career that he had reached the end, reached that, that problem. 
the true ultra running style right there. We broke the software. Like we broke the software duration capacity. <laughs> now, granted, there, that's the that was the the unedited you know version. There are plenty of big breaks in there, and it'll get shorter in editing and things, but not that much shorter. So. We're looking at twenty hours, roughly well, 20, 20. 20 to twenty four hours. Once it gets all like kind of edited down, we don't know exactly what the number is, but it's about. 3x that of actual studio time just to give the listeners some perspective so 20 hours is 60 hours in a booth six thousand f-bombs from yours truly that will never get released hopefully corinne had probably a few dozen in the, the ones that uh she read um but one so first off there's an audiobook Go check it on Audible or whatever, wherever everybody catches that these days. Um, I'm really happy with such a good sell. Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> really Once again, strong, we, we've really already we, sell, Coop. we've we've already established <laughs> that we're not in it for the money. So you know, um, but uh, so there's an audiobook. I was insistent that I read it since I have I literally have a voice. I have a podcast and things like that, and I didn't think that doing it with a voice actor um would uh uh would kind of would kind of do it justice we use the audiobook as part of the editing process which is really cool that was uh, some advice that uh my late friend uh, david clark gave me who actually recorded his final audiobook before he passed away in the same studio that uh we were recording the audiobook is uh dedicated to him and um one of the unique features which i completely stole from david goggins Shout out to you, David. I know you're not going to get too mad at me, brother. But the audiobook is interspersed with these really cool, punchy, super practical interviews. And they range everywhere from an interview with Ruddy and I to an interview with uh, Nick, who I mentioned earlier, who was a technical editor of the book. Uh, interviews with people like Emily Krauss, we talk about bone health. Interviews with uh, Stephanie, who was also a technical editor of the book, we talk about nutrition interviews with people like Justin Ross, who's a sports psychologist. And they're strategically placed at these points, one, to give you a break from my voice, because I can't imagine the listener on the other end listening to like 20 some odd hours of just me talking about like physiology and training and stuff like that. But it, it, it really ties together the practical elements that people are going to take the contents of this book and do something with them to your first point, Ruddy, right? They're going to listen to this and say, okay, I'm going to go run XYZ hours uh, tomorrow. So I'm going to really quickly play what some of that sounds like. This is an interview with Nick Tiller, and I can't remember offhand which one this actually is. This is showing my audio engineering inadequacies right here. But if you can imagine, I'm reading the book, and all of a sudden we take what I call a break in the read. It all kind of starts out the same uh, the same way. And this is what it sounds like. Okay, we are going to take another quick break in the read right here. And this time it is with Nick Tiller, PhD, who is a technical advisor on the book. And more important for this discussion, he's the author of The Skeptic's Guide to Sports Science, Confronting Myths of the Health and Fitness Industry. Nick, I want to talk about something that is rife in the ultramarathon world, something that is related to the weighted vest section I just read, and that is using anecdote to drive training practice. We just went over one of the techniques found in ultra running that has been popularized predominantly by anecdote, and that is the use of weighted vests. Okay. So you can imagine that like every hour or so, some like really cool punchy interview like that. And just to give 2VL some credit, that 
that audio for that hasn't quite been mastered and gone through all of his magic that he does, which is why it's a little le electronically sounding for people who are have particularly sensitive ears. But the whole book has these sprinkled in them with like almost like you're sprinkling in salt or sprinkles on a cupcake or something like that. And I think they add like the perfect like spice and texture to the whole thing that just ties a lot of the topics together. And I'm super, I'm just super happy with how it turned out. You listened to some of them, Ruddy, didn't you? Yeah. Yeah. And I think a lot, I think there's the, the variety component to it, but we also used them in places where the content um, is visually compelling in the book mm. and difficult to a little bit more difficult to get across in just audio. So there was, there were places where the, if you're looking at the book in print, there's going to be some references and some things that are easy to, um, to pick up that we couldn't quite explain just by reading them. So bringing somebody in to talk a little bit more about it, um, in, in a slightly different detail, um, help to you know illustrate those points that you're going to get if you're re reading the book um, in print, but are a little bit harder to convey in just straight audio. It's hard to describe a graph. Yeah. Well, you've got this U-curve and at the bottom of the U-curve, it's kind of squiggly. And then what that means is you're right. We, we, re we literally replaced some of the visuals with audio interviews. Now, go ahead. Go ahead, Craig say which like does a total disservice to all the work that <laughs> the very fair Abby Hall did on all those beautiful graphs. So, but they get um, all of the beautiful graphs in the digital packet that comes with the audio, uh, with the audio book. So they're going to get it. It's just that if you're, if you're listening to the audio book while running down a trail, which is probably <laughs> what a lot of people are going to be doing, they're not going to have the, the, they're not going to be seeing it at the same time. So, um, really it is a very complete work in the sense of you do get a digital packet that has all of those visuals in it. You have the added audio, uh, interviews, and then you have the read on top of it. Yeah. And you have access to that for forever. Mm -hmm. Like it's, a, it's literally a download. You can reference those charts. Thank you for mentioning Abby, Corinne. And so those, for those of you that don't know, Abby Hall is an elite runner with Adidas. Is that how we pronounce it now? Adidas, long A. Yeah. Okay. And she's, she's a very good runner, uh, qualified for Western States this year, just recently at Canyons. Maybe this will come out like right when Western States is being run. Who knows? This is when we put our unbiased plug in for Abby. Yeah. Abby's going to Western States. There we go. Um, yeah. But having an illustrator that knows the content really well is a godsend. One, Abby's a very talented, and I'm not giving her enough credit. She, she both created the illustrations as well as styled the book, which both of those are big parts of it. Like people think you just write something down on Word and then bingo, bango, poof, magic wand, fairy dust, and all of a sudden it turns into a book. I mean, it actually has to be what's called styled into the right format with the right layouts and the colors and the headers have to all match and it's got to fit within the parameters of the size of the book. That's a, that's a monumental task. So she did all that. She did the cover art. Um, and, um, uh, the fact that she knew the content, not only from having the previous edition of the book, but also being coached by me, one was good for her as an athlete, right? Cause she gets to see all the content and then apply it to her, to her own training. And the content is authentic. I mean, I, 
you know, it's everything that I do as a coach, but she, it was immediately relatable to her. So we could come up with an illustration on nutrition and take this in at one hour and take this in at two hours and take this in at three hours. She's like, oh, okay, I, I would know how to visually create like an infographic style illustration for exactly this because that's how I would want to see it as a runner. Which So anyway, that part was awesome. Yeah. She well, took I mean, our very terrible illustrations oh and made them and charts, like really confusing flow charts and made them palatable, more than palatable. Like we, I, we owe Abby so much in that sense because our, our terrible like printer paper, whiteboard scribbles, like were brought to life by Abby. Well, there were three flavors of this, right? Go ahead, Reddy. The, the first version of that, and I will not forget this, is, is Jason in your old office in the in the CTS headquarters yeah. and the whiteboard. And it was the, the stick figure, uh, oh, graphic yeah. Yeah. with, it was sort of this, you know, three X size so that you could do the, you have like protractors mm -hmm. and getting the angles right and everything else. And we're making it on the whiteboard, taking photos of it, making the changes. It was like doing, um, uh, the, the animation of this stick yeah. figure to get all the angles right. And like it, it then and on the first edition, one of the issues was that we were handing it off to developers who didn't necessarily know all of the ins and outs of what the illustrations were that they were getting. And yeah. then we ended up with a couple of problems here and there. Not that the end point was, was poor, but it would, took a lot more back and forth yeah, yeah. to get it right because we would get things back and be like, yeah, that doesn't look right. Yeah. And I have to go back and back and back to the illustrators where it was definitely more streamlined uh, with Abby. That So that illustration that you just mentioned, Ruddy, I think the audience will appreciate how this came to light. So not only was there this monstrosity of electrical tape and protractors and, thing and things drawn in the margin on my whiteboard, but the way, so the illustration that we're talking about, I don't know the number right off the top of my head, but it has four stick figures that compare running on level ground, running uphill, running downhill, and walking all in this representation to demonstrate how the joint segment angles are different in all of those forms of locomotion at the same point, which we determined was going to be foot strike and toe off, right? We're, so we're trying to calibrate all of those. There's no singular research paper that actually does that. So what I did is I think that, I think that there were four or five different papers that I pulled all together to try to create these three, th these three D sticks makes, makes me sound like I work at Pixar or something like that. It was very much, very much not the case to create these stick figures, these very rudimentary stick figures that I then calibrated literally with a protractor because the paper did not have illustrations. It's not like I'm alchemizing illustrations from research papers. I'm alchemizing the data from those different research papers. Okay, this knee angle is at this degree. So I take that, I draw it out on the whiteboard, measure it with the protractor, tape over it with electrical tape. And I would repeat that for every single joint angle across all four of those modalities. It was like at least five or seven days worth of work just to put that one uh, il illustration together. And Nick's comment on that after he, re after he reviewed it was, that's pretty cool. 
And that made me feel so good. It's like after Nick gets done trashing me for like 14 chapters or whatever, just like the four little words, that's, this is actually pretty cool. <laughs> so I was like, oh, look at that. All that work actually kind of got it, kind of paid off. But so the long and the short of it is shout out to Abby Hall, who's the illustrator. Very fortunate that she came on board with this process. She did, she did a fantastic job. And uh, the fact that it's all relatable to her is great. I think that's another one of the things I didn't think about. All this content is by endurance athletes, right? I mean, it's all, we kind of own it. We're endurance athletes. We're invested in the sport. We, you know, if we don't get it right, it's all our faults. <laughs> but we should know what we're doing, I guess, is what I'm saying. Um, a lot of times when you work with a publisher, and once again, I'm very, I think we're both Riley and I are very fortunate that we could initially work with VeloPress on this. But one of the problems with the publisher is they don't know the space well enough to be able to provide like guidance on certain on like certain parts of the content i guess is what i'm, what I'm trying um, to communicate i don't know that i would necessarily agree with that i think that that especially there, so i've had the opportunity to work with some of the larger uh, sort of mass market publishers as well as velopress so if you're working with say rodale or penguin or some of those i think that's where you end up with more of an acquisitions editor or a development editor who really has very little experience in what your subject matter is. Um, Velopress is a specialized publisher in mostly endurance sport. So at least they have a, they know the context they know, and, and especially they know the audience. So um, one of the things with, and one of the kind of pain points that we ran into a little bit was of them saying, hey, this is what's going to sell in this, in terms yes. of, of <laughs> this is what people are purchasing and the tone and the length and the uh, level of complexity. And then that was, you know, w there's a push and pull there all the time yeah. between I want it to be more technical. Well, it needs to be a little bit more mainstream and you're pushing and pulling on and trying to find the right balance there. Um, but I think they do a, a very good job at knowing what that endurance athlete audience wants and, and, and finding it because the larger publishers, the, the penguins and, and not to, not to call out any one individual age, but just in general, the large uh, publishers, um, they do a very good job on in, in certain areas, but in the niche of endurance sports, Velopress really, I think has, has done a good job at, at, um, figuring out what that audience is looking for and finding authors and finding books that, um, that can be published in that sense. Not only that, but they, you know, I, have I guess I'm somewhat loyal to, to, uh, develop us in, in the sense that they support their titles, yeah, uh, long-term, um, some of the other books that are, 100%. that are in there, whether it's the time crunch cyclist and time crunch athlete or Joe Friel's books with, with training Bible and, uh, the, uh, training and racing with a power meter. If those books had been published by, you know, one of the very big mainstream publishers, they would have been published once and yeah. been done. Yeah. Um, but because of the way that Velopress, because of their philosophy, they support that back catalog very, very well so that in, endurance athletes uh, can, can purchase those books for long-term. Well, the big publishers, not to get too, you know, nitty gritty with the publishing industry because nobody cares, but it's my podcast. I can talk about whatever I want to. The, the big, the big, the big publishers, they're like at the casino, 
They're yeah. looking for the next David Goggins book to use his name again. They're looking for the next book that's going to get into the top five on Amazon. And then they're set for the year. They don't have to worry about anything else. So they just roll the dice with 10 or 20 different people across a ver- more than that. But a lot of people across a lot of different genres. And they ride the winning horses until they're dead. And the horses they suck that, that suck, they just put them out to pasture and you know let them live their you know life on other. I mean, literally, that's the way it works. They make all their profit off of a very few titles, and if you're in that group, you're going to get a lot of support. But if you're not, it's kind of like me, like yeah, what, what, you, what you need some marketing money for this? I don't know. I don't know if we could. I don't know if we could do this. You're ranking on Amazon's in the you know hundred thousands. Like it's just a really rough really rough industry. Right. And then you go back to your early statement about 80% of the books don't make more than their royalty or their, their, uh, advance money. Well, that's part of the reason is that right. the, you, you essentially write the book, they put it out. Um, you get about three weeks worth of marketing to see whether or not it's going to catch or not. And if it doesn't, you're pretty much done. And if it does, then they put the, you know, they kind of shuttle the money behind it. Um, and and that's just sort of the the way that market is. Uh, so some of the smaller publishers, I think, are finding ways to kind of beat that system a little yeah, bit. Yeah. And then the self publishing world is beating that system or changing that system um, a, as well. So I think if anything, this environment and you going from sort of a specialty publisher and then going to self publishing is the way that things are are progressing for. Um, books that wouldn't otherwise get the level of support that, that they need in order to, to exist. Corinne, does this make you want to write your own book? All this banter about not making any money. It's a shit ton of work. Your publishers don't want to support you. <laughs> it's definitely not a strong sell. Let's put it that way. My, I, my, one of my younger brothers is a self-publishing oh, yeah, like right. young adult fiction author. And he just like loves it and like does his own thing and is having a great time. And, I recognize that the things I want to write are like super, super niche. And so it's like, what do you, what do you do with that? I don't know. It's it's Well, I guess that goes back to a question for Jason really is, okay, so you wrote the first one basically because I cajoled you into it. (laughs) Um, And then we're working on the second one. What did you either find that the benefit was for having the book out there? And then therefore, once the, after the benefit of the first one, what was the incentive then to do the second one? Um, that's a good question. <laughs> Self-punishment? Um, no, I mean, I, I really, I, not to sound, not to like get too egotistical on the thing, but it really resonated with me to continue to have a benchmark book out there. Um, that was, that, that's once I realized that it has the potential to do so, and I like wholeheartedly believed it, I kind of viewed it as like part of my legacy, mm-hmm. which is, it's hard to, it's hard to say those things in real time because the history books will eventually write your legacy. But I, I'd be, I'd be fooling myself if that didn't cross my, if that didn't like cross my brain, uh, from time to time. The other piece uh, is circling back to something that we mentioned earlier is there was so much more that I wanted to do with it that either got left on the cutting room floor or I just didn't do very well. There are a lot of things that I wanted to 
explain differently. I was going to say fix, but that's not the right word. There's a lot of things that I wanted to explain differently or with or more thoroughly or put a different context on. The strength training chapter is a great piece, is is a great uh, uh, example of that, where the first edition of the book, I had it written and it got put on the cutting room floor for for kind of for, for a variety of reasons and got turned into a sidebar. And I got hammered on it. I got in the, you know, Amazon comments and shit like that, which if you, if you ever publish a book, don't read the Amazon comments because you can't do anything about it. You know, when you go to write a second book, then go and read that and take it into context. Of it, but don't read it in real time because there's nothing you could do about it. And all it is is, you know, not all, but it's a lot of it's irritating. But one, one of the bigger criticisms of the book was that one section out of 100,000 words that the book contains, a 500 word sidebar gets all of this vitriol from the community. I was like, okay, well, all right, I'll take that. I didn't explain that correctly. I didn't fight to leave the content in there enough, I guess. So I'm going to go and redo it and I'm going to do it right. And that's exactly what I did. I brought in the experts. I brought in Sarah. Hey, Sarah, let's go ahead and let's design this. Let's come up with the content collaboratively together. And now there's a whole chapter, a whole freaking chapter, which is like 10,000 words from a 500 word sidebar, 10,000 words just on strength training for ultra running. And the sentiment is still the same. So there you go. You don't have to buy the new book just for the strength training chapter because the end result, the end, not the end, end result, but the end sentiment, I guess, is, is, is very similar. It's not the same. We do give a, like a grid practical overlay of here's where it can work. Here's where it doesn't work. Here's what you need to watch out for. And also the implementation side of it, just like the training side, there are no answers, right? There's no static training program in the book. That's another thing that I don't mind getting hammered on that because that's an integrity issue from my perspective. Um, so those of you expecting a static training program in the book, you will be sorely disappointed. Don't go buy it and bitch about the fact that there is not one. I'm telling you right now that there's no static training programs in the book. Don't complain about it if you were expecting them. Um, what was I saying about that? Oh, the strength training chapter. Uh, there is just like the periodization side of things, just like the run periodization side, just like the psychology side of things. There is framework that if you apply a remedial amount of logic and thought to, you can look at it and say, okay, here's how I'm going to design my strength training program. And that's the theme throughout the whole book is for somebody to look at it, put a little bit of thought into it and be able to DIY things them, them, themselves as opposed to just here's the answer or here's what I did with Dakota or here's how Corinne trains. Like it's very much written from the standpoint of we want people to absorb the information, synthesize it and be able to make their own decisions. And it's a reference Book. I mean, I think that's the reason that we, nobody, that I, for instance, didn't fight against, hey, we can't get this book to be this long. It can't be 20 yeah. chapters and whatever. Because when you look at a book like this, um, I don't know that too many people, some people are going to read it cover to cover. But if they do, they're also going to skip around. Or after the fact, it's like, oh, I remember there was something about strength training. Let me go look it up. Yeah, It's... I don't remember the part about nutrition. I'm going to go look it up. Hey, I'm having trouble with hydration and sodium levels. Oh, there's a section in about that in the book. I'm going to go look that up. So I think we produced it in such a way that um, it didn't have to be quick moving and entertaining. To, that it's oh, not. At, at, well, at its <laughs> core. I think that there are some books that are written, whether they're some books, even as nonfiction, 
that are written in such a way that they're just that they're trying to you know keep you hooked and yeah. and kind of written with a more of a marketing uh, gist to them. This one is more. We know it's going to be a reference book um, as much as it's going to be a cover to cover book. There's some. I mean, Corinne, you kind of mentioned this in in your section as well. There's some like first person narrative parts to it, not in the sense of I did this, so you should do it as well, but stories that kind of tie together the major themes or just make them relatable. Like I have the Krispy Kreme story of how the rice balls originated where, you know, originally I just stopped by Krispy Kreme and I shoved them all into a bag and I said, oh, I just need to make this a little bit better food content. So I'm going to create this rice ball recipe, which I totally stole from Stacy Sims. That's another theme in the book that I'm just like stealing and adapting <laughs> things from other people and putting, putting my own, my own little spin on them. But I took her, you know, kind of rice ball recipe strategy or whatever. And I put it into that Krispy Kreme, you know, sandwich bag format and voila, you know, that kind of thing took off. So there, it's not so dry that no, it's just no, it's a bunch dry. of like <clears throat> academia stuff. There's stories. What was the one in your, Corinne, remind me again in the women's section, there was some like really like punchy part that you had in there. Do you remember what it was? Or maybe it was in the environmental section. That was punchy. Yeah. It, I, was, I, was like, I, I just remember mean? reading it and going, oh, that's actually kind of funny. Oh, I mean, I don't know. I'm kind of a little bit sarcastic, but I don't know. <laughs> I that think I'm that's like, more what it was. It was like, I do think, you really think this is a good idea? It was something like that. Yeah. Like <laughs> I'm kind of a sassy human being. So I feel like there were things throughout. And honestly, I got really sassy during the editing process. Like much praise to our to to uh stephanie howe and to nick tiller but there were some edits i was like yes change yes change and then there's some where i would like would comment back to the edits and i would be like well if you look at this paper blah 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 blah, blah. like total like i would just like you know and then he'd like say something nice about my writing or steph would text me and be like oh you did a good job i'd be like yes it's um, hard not to take some things personally in that process yeah. i mean you've you've it's spent like so much baby. time right you've spent so much time working on it and to have someone else come back and go yeah but this is wrong you're like oh well, wait huh? you know how what do you mean but it's yeah it's so necessary it's, though like that's yeah. why i wanted nick and steph on there nick very specifically because he doesn't mind telling it like it is. Yeah. And I was very upfront with him when I brought him onto the project. I was like, I, be harsh. I don't care. The, the harsher, the better. I've got thick skin. I can take it. I just want the best product that's out there. Stephanie, because I have a good relationship with her, I, I, I coach her and we've known each other for, for, for a long time. She doesn't mind telling me like it is either. Even in our coach athlete relationship, like we have a good back and forth that you know, we don't, we, we're very, very honest and open with each other and you need that and you need that in editors. Otherwise you just get, you know, a bunch of, oh, you're doing a great job and all oh, of this is awesome and you're the best writer ever. And like, that doesn't, there was not that doesn't, a lot of that. Yeah, that doesn't elevate the content though. That's what I keep coming back to. Like you need somebody to go through with a fine tooth comb. That's kind of harsh to elevate the content. My biggest dilemma or, or, or uh, hesitation point in the whole process was you sent me a revision of, of either the intro or chapter one or something like that. And I read it and it was a lot of work that had gone into it. And I remember sitting there going, I don't think we can use this. 
And I don't know how to tell Jason that without really hurting his feelings. Like, I did not want to be the person to send that email, but I'm like, okay, eventually I'm just going to have to send this because I'm going to feel really bad if I don't. But this is not going to be easy to tell him. Uh, No, I took that very well. I'm glad you did that. I started, just to give a little bit of backstory, I wanted the intro to have a to have a little bit of to use Karen's word have a little bit of sass had a little punch in it like I wanted to address some of the criticisms I wanted to kind of go through my background and things like that because I think that's compelling storyline and when people people do judge books by their covers and as much as flippant as I am about I don't care if people buy it I do there's an economic incentive for me to to for people to buy books and people will read the first inter that people will just read the introduction whatever is like you know, Amazon's preview or whatever, and they'll decide to buy it just based off of that. And so I wanted to create some compelling dialogue, I guess is what I'm getting down to. I just didn't want to go, this is a book about training ultramarathons. You're going to be better and faster and stronger after having read it. I wanted to have some compelling content. And I just think I went a little bit overboard with creating something like, like, uh, something a little bit controversial. So everybody brought me back down to earth. But it's still, it's still like I go through yeah. the strength training piece. I go through the criticisms that have been leveled at me about the training philosophies mm-hmm. and things like that by coaches, by people in in the industry, because it's not just I'm trying to be controversial to like drum up shit. Yeah, that's part of it. I'll totally admit it. But I think that that's also part of the storyline. I think that that's important for people to know that a it's not just me thinking some of these things, I bring people into the room, other experts and collaborators to help figure the things out. But I'm not the only game in town. I realize that there are people that are coaches or athletes or other practitioners out there that don't have the same opinion as me, as I do on certain topics. And that's fine. I don't mind bringing that stuff to the forefront and just saying, here's the buffet of ideas, right? You can kind of like figure here's what I think about it. But I don't mind, I don't mind presenting that landscape. Yeah, the, as I said, the, the, <laughs> you the, said Corinne, did you right, the, the, the tone of the one that you said was a little bit <laughs> aggressive to the point of like, I don't know that people are going to get to chapter two if you do this. Let's I just soften it up a little bit. Of that. Let's just put it this way: I told a really good story. Corinne will will know who this individual is. The listeners might not, so I'll go into a little bit of detail. I, I I tell this good story about our my our very good colleague and friend uh, Dean Golich, who was who was actually very impactful on my coaching career because he was because he was so hard on me and he was so hard on everybody like really brutally every single day relent, relentlessly difficult on the coaching product that that you put forward because he viewed that as a direct reflection of him because we're all in the same kind of the same organization and so i used that story as a kind of a formative part of my coaching development where I didn't have it very easy. I didn't know a whole lot. I didn't come from a PhD level background. I didn't have Ivy League education. I was working in sport groups of which I had no clue, no clue. I was a runner and I was working with cyclists and triathletes. I had no idea about the culture, how the sport worked or anything like that. I had to freaking learn everything. And every single day I got my ass handed to me by Dean who would just take me to the woodshed you don't know what you're talking about. You need to go look this up. This is 
you know, dog shit training, like the whole, like the whole nine yards. And I, I, I went a little bit overboard on painting, painting that picture. But the fact of the matter is, is that was really formative in my coaching career, not just Dean, but the whole group of coaches that I initially came into contact with, which I'm still very, I'm still very grateful to have, uh, to, to, to have that experience, but you're right, Ruddy. It was, that story was not portrayed very well. Yeah. I mean, (laughs) you and I came up in an interesting uh, environment. I mean, we were both in that environment with Dean, um, with with JT. I mean, it was, it was a environment where we were relatively inexperienced, very inexperienced in in what we were doing. And then in a, there wasn't as much of a, um, in other places, there's a hierarchy that goes, you know, like, beginners and, and middle managers and whatever else we were dumped in with very, very the elite experts. people yeah, from experts. a very, very early age. And, um, that was a very formative, uh, experience for both of us. Cause yeah, it was, it was definitely a trial by fire. It was trial by fire. So Corinne, now, you know, we've been through this dialogue privately, but I'll say it publicly. Now, you know, why I'm so hard on you. I'm not that hard on you anymore, but I was hard on you initially. Um, as well that's as the what rest- you told. I was gonna say this is. I think that's it's illustrated by when um, I was getting hired to be a long term sub last year. Um, oh yeah, that's right. Stella, yeah, that's- my like the one of the the dean of faculty, called you up and she wanted to know how I take criticism. And you said nothing <laughs> anyone says to Corinne will be harsher or meaner than any criticism I've ever given her. <laughs> and also more honest. I said that too. Yeah. No, I was like, no, but okay. That has to be couched with, like, we're, we're painting a picture of Jason as this, as an ogre, and he's not, like, you know, his bedside manner could use a little bit of, you know, yeah, sometimes, softening. Sometimes. But um, it's not done abusively. It's done very constructively and, um, and with I care. Think, Lots yeah, of care. But I think it's this, it's very similar to the way the tone that's in the book is accurate to the way that you coach and the way that you work with with colleagues as well which is it's compassionate to a point. And then there's a point of, you're just going to have to do this. Yeah. Um, and I think that that is part and parcel with ultra running in general. Um, there is a, a lot of compassion that happens out on courses and in training and things like that. But at a certain point, ultra running comes down to either you're going to get this done or you're not. That is a hundred percent correct. I never actually thought about it like that, but that's a pretty darn, pretty darn, pretty darn good analogy. You got to get get over the finish line with your own two feet. Um, but need, needless to say, um, a a lot of the to to ping off of your point, Ruddy, a lot of the content within the book is a direct reflection of that upbringing. Bring so it'd be remiss not to mention not only Dean, but as you mentioned, J, JT Kearney, who I've had on podcasts as well, who. Once again, if there was ever an angel that came down to form my coaching career, it was it was definitely JT Kearney, who did have the right balance of compassion and criticism. He did that better than no other person I could have ever imagined. And I remember every single Wednesday, I could get two hours of his time if I bought him a Venti, what was it? It's a Venti uh, Caramel Macchiato. And a pumpkin scone over at uh, uh, over at Starbucks, and this is at a time where I didn't have two nickels to rub together. So plunking down ten bucks to get two hours of somebody's time to go over physiology was actually a pretty big spend for me. But I did that relentlessly, and 
every single week when I got that kind of one-on-one time with JT, that made a bigger impact on my in, the entire trajectory of my career as compared to almost anything else that I've ever done. Everything makes a little bit of a difference, but that those three or four years that I get to work with him in that capacity was was incredibly f- formative. So, well, a lot, JT's a lot of, your experience with Nick and Stephanie, or our experience with Nick and Stephanie. My first version of that was JT ripping apart a manuscript of mine, <laughs> and like you, what it was, you'd go into those meetings just having to like leave your, you just had to leave your ego you at the door, the door yeah. um, because if you tried to defend, the, you know, like if you got defensive about it, you were just not, it wasn't going to work out very well for you, yeah. and you just had to. You know, and that was in itself a learning process to, you know, the to accept criticism, constructive criticism that way in in editing. And one of the things that I've told coaches who write um, things because I think I view my career a lot as trying to help coaches get their messages and voices out there uh, in in creating content. One of the things that I tell them often is. Once you put it out there, it's not yours anymore. Yeah. You can't be next to your article. You can't be next to your book and go, yeah, 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 but I, this is what I meant. Yeah. It has to, once it's in their hands, they get to determine what it is and what it means and all of those things. You can't be there, um, which means that you have to be willing to go through that level of criticism ahead of time and in the, in the editing process because otherwise it's going to, you're not going to be happy with what the feedback is when you put it out in the world. That was scary shit to me when I couldn't edit anymore. The first version, when I I remember this really distinctly, we were going back and forth with the copy editor. So at that stage of the book, all the content is done. You're just fixing like where the lines are and stuff like that. And I'd found this flub. I can't even remember what it was. It was like something on an axis or something like something kind of, immaterial that I probably should have noticed earlier and I noticed it and I I started this email to the to the copy editor hey can you just fix this you know this kind of like one last thing I got distracted go figure I got distracted and I came back to my computer like 20 or 30 minutes later and I sent the email and Casey the editor Casey Blaine uh shout out to her the editor at the time uh who was working on it she said oh we already sent it to the printer I was like, but no, but no, like there's no, I can't erase all, you know, however many tens of thousands of copies you're going to print. I, this is one thing. It's, hard. it's like, oh, we'll fix it in the second printing. Yeah. It's but like, that's God the, damn it. you know, how many, how many of the great American novels are sitting on somebody's, you know, shelf or on somebody's, uh, in somebody's computer because they are continually doing that to them and never, ever getting them yeah. off to yeah. somebody like as as we were saying with uh 2vl and other people like you will always be able to find something you're going to change yeah, right. at some point you're going to have to kick it over the fence and go yep this is what i'm how it is that i'm going to put it out corinne are you scared so you've written a lot for iron far it's a website right you can catch shit after the fact and go oh wait wait you got to change this one thing and it's not that hard of a that's not that hard of a fix this is permanent right it's not well if the book version is permanent are you scared to have something permanently erroneous that your name is attached it's, to in perpetuity? It's a little intimidating, right? When I write comment, when I write, when I, was saying, when I write comments, when I write articles for 
for us, for CTS or for I Run Far, like there's a comment section. And oftentimes, you know, it's encouraged, at least with I Run Far, that I go back through and I I engage with the commenters, which sometimes can be equally daunting, maybe. Um, so I don't know if it's better or worse to not like once it's out there in, in a book, like I don't have to engage the comment section. So that there's something like attractive <laughs> about that though, a little bit. You don't have to engage the comment section. I love it. It's the book. Uh, all right. So we're going to sit here. This book is going to be released probably the week that this podcast comes out. Ruddy, what number is this for you? Nine? Nine. Jesus, yeah. man. I can't imagine that. Nine books. I didn't start out wanting to do this. It just sort of just fell into it. And um, I'm, as I said, I, I, we, you and I started out in in coaching. You went full force into what kind of personal coaching. I realized relatively early on that I liked the not only having the ability to have influence on a larger number of athletes by through content as opposed to one on one coaching, but I also really liked seeing you and Jim Lehman and Dean Golich and everybody else. Um, that you guys could really focus on coaching and I could focus on getting your voices out and getting the messaging out um, because I liked the impact of that. Um, so yeah, one thing led to the other and here we are. Here we are, nine <laughs> books later, two of which- By accident. Yeah, by yeah. accident, right? Um, this is two for me. There's a lot of books we can take credit for now already. We can start our own little publishing house. I've thought about it, but I uh, oh god! <laughs> but uh, no, I think you know the nice thing. I think Velopress is going to um, you know they've had a lot of um, progression or advancement with being now being outside and everything yeah, yeah, yeah. and and Active Pass and um, I'm looking forward to I think Active that Velopress is going to really get cranking up again uh, within outside and I think there are some opportunities not only for some other CTS coaches potentially to uh, have books in there and, and other ideas that, that uh, could run through that. Because not everyone's going to be as gung-ho to do um, uh, self-publishing the way you were. I don't know. I mean, once again, I kind of got forced into it with COVID, right? right? For, I mean, they didn't for, I could have waited, right? I can do whatever I want to. But it definitely for, forced my hand into it. And I don't know yet. Don't ask me the question if you're thinking about it. I don't know that. I don't know if I, let's get this one out the door and then I can think about self-publishing or trying to shop it out to a publisher and next go around Karen, you'll have to be involved in that if you want to i don't know if this process is now like screw you guys i'm going home one and done <laughs> but Karen, yeah did we sign a blood pack at no, some point in time but, like a pact that's been put together it's, it's inherent it's it, once your name's on it it's it's one of the assumptions but congratulations first off Corinne. It's your first book i know it was it was special for me it was special for uh ruddy uh first time you're going to get when you get a galley copy and you see your name in print permanently permanently <laughs> attached to this and you're going to go around to all the local bookstores and realize that none of them give a shit about it and you're not going to find it <laughs> but it's still it's still pretty i actually did that i went to barnes and nobles and i tried to find it in places and it wasn't anywhere the physical book <laughs> It was so depressing. My mother <laughs> used to go to bookstores. To no <laughs> My mother used to go to bookstores and move the books around so that the, <sighs> if it wasn't on the end cap, she would push it on the end cap. <laughs> if it wasn't the book that was facing out on the on the shelves, she would rearrange the shelves so the book was facing out. It was pretty funny. We're gonna hire Barbara Rutberg for PR on yeah. this one. 
I love that. Yeah, I'm excited. I, it's, you know, I was thrilled when you asked me to be part of this project and it's so cool to get it. Like, I will be thrilled when I like get to like hold my copy of the book. And you get to listen to it. You get to listen oh, to yeah. your... And, and I get to listen get to, to it. You get to listen to your voice, read a whole chapter. What was the hardest word that you had to say, by the way? Oh, I had that sentence. I don't know if anyone recalls that sentence that had like all of the... um disorders, diseases, and conditions that uh, hormonal birth control can help alleviate. And we like made it through in one take. And then I flubbed at the very end on like an easy word. (laughs) And so we were able to cut in though. So I didn't have to reread the whole sentence because there was no way I was going to make it through it after that. So yeah, I was disappointed with how many times I used the word progesterone throughout a chapter. That was very intimidating. Yeah. Well, you said it, you said it good. Uh, but yeah, you get to listen to it. So congratulations, Grin. Thank you for coming on to the project. I don't know if you I don't know if you realized the the enormity or the extent of how this was actually gonna turn out, nor could I, because it seems to, you know, once again, I'm not bound by a publisher, so it seemed to more from book to audiobook to audiobook with these reads interspersed in them. There'll probably be something else associated with this after it's all said and done. But I hope uh I hope you enjoyed the process. It was good growth for you as a coach, right? Yeah, for sure. And of course. we'll make tens of dollars off of it. Yeah, I'm going to hook up like a little teardrop trailer to the, the Sprinter van and we can we can take the show on the road. Oh my gosh. Well, yeah, maybe when it comes out, the COVID restrictions will be lifted enough to where we can actually do some physical things at run shops and things like that. I enjoyed that a lot with the first edition going around and and. And in doing that, that was really fun. So who knows what comes of it. Ready number nine is number 10. Do you have a 10th one coming around? You- Not currently. Um, I was fortunate in, in 2020, uh, right at the same time that they were putting uh, the second edition of this book on hold, they green light, they, uh, they green lighted a, the final book that they green lighted was a book called Ride Inside um, that Joe Friel and I were working on probably because it was on in, riding indoors and everybody was riding indoors during the <laughs> pandemic. Joe had actually- gonna, Wait a minute, wait, 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 hold on. So they kicked me to the curb because they're like, ah, these ult- this ultra running thing's not going to work out very well. But let's go let's go ride the ride inside horse. We're going to ride that to the very end because we minute, know we can make money on that one. Wait a minute. <laughs> that book had been in process for two years yeah. prior to the pandemic. Okay, and, uh, likely story. And Joe had had that book in the works for quite a while. It was mostly, it was actually done um, in January of 2020. Um, and so it was in that beginning of production. So it was just the last one that they continued working on. Uh, and so convenient. Yeah, so convenient. It was definitely so, a good so timing. very convenient. Mm-hmm. Maybe I'm going to start the conspiracy theory that you guys engineered the pandemic. So everybody had to write inside right. and you could sell more books. <laughs> Instead of selling 10 copies, you could sell 20. Exactly. <laughs> No, all due respect to Joe. You've worked with some cool authors. And I'm not just saying that because I've worked with you, but you work with Chris and you had a lot of cool titles to Chris. Mm-hmm. You worked with Joe. Joe's fantastic author, really well respected, one of the most highly respected coaches in, in the endurance world. Yeah. And then you get to work with lowly little me. You've spread the gamut, man. Like you've triathlon, cycling, running, shit, dude. Y'all go hot. If you guys need a freaking co-author or ghostwriter, or like go ruddy. He's the most experienced person in the game. Seriously. 
it's been as I said, it's been fun, and I I like the idea of uh, one of the things that I've realized over the years is that, that um, different coaches or different people in general have their strengths in the sense that some people. I was talking to another coach actually who he does vlogs and he's really very good at them. And he and I were talking and he said, I can't do what you do. I can't write. Every time I try to write, it comes out terribly, but I can do it on video. And I'm the opposite. I am horrible on video. I'm horrible in front of a camera, but I can write. So it's kind of playing to your strengths and doing the things that you can do. And the, um, with a variety of coaches I've tried over the years I know that they're smart people. I know that they're really good at their jobs. And if I can help them to get the, that message out in a way that they might not be willing to do, I mean, if we hadn't done the first edition of this book, you'd still be kind of in your little office coaching at a lot of people and doing very well at it, but probably not, you know, sharing that information with as many people as we could have. And as we have, because I was able to cajole you into doing something you know, with a, a greater, uh, a greater reach. Yeah. Corinne, you'll be amazed at the reach. You, you don't have any concept of it. Like we're kind of like saying how silly and small the community is or whatever, but because it's silly and small, you'll every single race you go to, you'll have somebody that has your section dog eared and you're going to love it. So, or it'll be really awkward. Like <laughs> really awkward. No, my, like my, I think like the moment maybe I'm most proud of so far in my like coaching, writing, running career is that my mom was waiting for me at Michigan bluff during Western States. I think she was at Michigan bluff. Maybe she was at the river crossing. doesn't matter. But, um, someone said like, Oh, what runner are you waiting for? And my mom was like, Oh, I'm waiting for my daughter, Corinne Malcolm. And the person was like, oh, I love her articles oh, on I Run so Far. Cool. It wasn't like, oh, yeah, she should be coming soon. It was like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I really I really like her articles. Yeah, the, re so, the reach that was is pretty cool. The reach is incredible. So you'll you'll dig it. Well, thank you, guys. I can't wait for it to hit the shelves or virtual shelves and Amazon, which tend to dominate everything now. Uh, I'm I, like I said, I can't uh, I can't thank you guys enough. And just really ex I can't express my feelings enough to just say how happy with the final product I am it's and I was not always confident that it was going to be something that I could put my name on as writing very well knows but you guys were a big part in turn turning that into reality where I can look at it and go this is pretty this is really freaking awesome so thank you you did most of the work <laughs> it takes a team, people. Yeah, like we're we're the supporting characters. I don't know about that. You guys are going to become the main characters at some point. They're going to want they're going to want the current Malcolm book with Jason Coop and possibly Jim Rupert. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>Go check out the Audible version of it. I am really happy with the way the audio book turned out. Special shout out to Tuviel Levy for uh, helping this rookie reader sound at least uh, moderately competent. But the audio book is fantastic. Uh, I brought in a number of special guests for it. And I just, I cannot believe that I was able to get that many high quality people through all corners of the community together to contribute to that. So go check the book out. Go check the audio book out 
or go check out both if you are so inclined. Special thanks to Corinne and to Jim Rutberg for graciously becoming the co-authors on this book and putting up with all of my incessant edits and re-edits and edits after the re-edits. Also, in addition to that, very special thanks to Stephanie Howe and Nick Tiller for providing a lot of the scientific edits and guidance on this book. You two raised the content of the book to heights that I could not have imagined. You saved me from a lot of bloopers. And in addition to that, the readers can have a degree of trust in the accuracy and how the scientific information is conveyed. Thanks to Alison Goldstein for providing uh, all of the uh, all of the edits to the books, all the copy edits. That is a very tedious and painstaking job, one that I don't want. But once again, Allison was able to raise the content of the book, uh, of the book as well. And thanks to Catherine Etzel, some, something that doesn't go appreciated enough in books like this is the index. I told Catherine to put a very heavy hand on the index so people could go to the book and actually say, I want to look up something about carbohydrate metabolism or any number of these very scientific topics and go directly to that page. Once again, this book is meant to be a reference manual and a big part of any reference manual is having a high quality index to which you can go and reference very specific things. So thank you to Catherine for putting that index together. And last but not least, Abby Hall, who did all the illustrations and the styling of the book. Thank you for taking all of these tedious scientific graphs and charts and forming it, formatting them into something that is that is pleasing to the eye and that everybody can understand. I'm immensely grateful to you, Abby, for bringing the book really to life from a visual and palatable perspective. All right. That's it, folks. Appreciate the heck out of all the listeners. And as always, we will see you out on the trails.